0: Forty miles from Detroit, and the cold is coming down. Headed north on a greyhound, but it feels like heaven bound. I'll be staying with my cousin, sending money when I can. I'm headed for the poor man's promised land. Seven dollars in my pocket, with a suitcase in my hand. I'm headed for the poor man's promised land. make the cars some fix them while others cut the deals we're flocking to a city built on oil and rust and steel and i got a job at the stamping plant i'm doing the best i can i made it to the poor man's promised land that's right folks even though we're all pent up in pandemic quarantine today on the msu press podcast we're headed to the poor man's promised land detroit rock city the home of motown the birthplace of funk the eight-mile cradle of American music. Joining us on our trip today are Jim Daniels and M.L. Liebler, the editors of an exciting anthology from MSU Press that covers the poetry of Detroit music entitled Respect. Thanks for tuning in. Respect is a massive collection of poems and lyrics, a monument that shows the global impact of Detroit's music scene its contents span genres from jazz and Motown and R&B to hip-hop, rap, rock, and even techno and electronica. The book's contributors are Grammy winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, and Poets Laureate. In its nearly 450 pages appear pieces by Eminem, June Jordan, Rita Dove, Jack White, Nikki Giovanni, Patricia Smith, Billy Bragg, and many more. I'm so excited to be joined today by the book's editors. Jim Daniels, and M.L. Liebler to discuss respect and the history of Detroit music. Detroit native and prize-winning poet, Jim Daniels is the Thomas Stockham Baker University Professor of English at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He's the author of many collections of fiction and poetry, as well as four produced screenplays. M.L. Liebler is an internationally known and widely published Detroit poet, university professor, literary arts activist, and arts organizer. Author of 15 books, Liebler has been a member of the English Department faculty at Wayne State University since 1980, and he's currently the president of the Detroit Writers Guild. Jim, ML, thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today. yeah. I was wondering if we could just start by talking a little bit about the origin of the project. Where did the idea come from and what set you on this work?
1: Yeah, well, here's here's how I came to it. Originally, I did this book called Heaven Was Detroit, um, which I first envisioned as a literary project, meaning poems and stories and creative essays. Um, and I, I, I had picked out, you know, people that I wanted to get uh, to participate in it and so forth. Uh, but when I took the idea initially, well, you know, actually, Jim, you play more of a role in this than you might know. So I took the the idea to Wayne State first, and this was before heaven was Detroit even. And they said, nah, no, you know, we got a lot going on and so forth. Well, Jim had talked to a person at the University of Michigan Press and maybe just mentioned this um, in passing. And the, one, the the editor was very excited about the idea, and he put me in touch with her. And she was very excited about the idea, and um, but you know then I started to feel a little bit guilty, um, as I often do, and I'm, not, I'm I was uh, I'm a convert to Catholicism, but I still got a little bit of that guilt thing. But so I felt bad, and I went to Wayne State and uh, Press. They liked the project, they loved the idea. If I wouldn't consider doing it as a uh, essay collection. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I really don't know a book's worth of essayists, you know, rock journalists or music journalists. Um, And she said, well, you know, think about it a little bit. Well, before she left, I said, you know, I do know a bunch of people that will work nicely in this because I knew Dave Marsh and I knew Lester Bangs had worked in Detroit. So I figured I could find stuff there. And that was sort of the initial start for Heaven Was Detroit. And it went in the same um, organizational layout as jazz, blues, pre motown Motown, et cetera. Um, and, and so that was a success and that happened and it's, you know, still selling okay for them. Uh, but after the dust settled, I started thinking back to my original idea. Uh, I thought about that. And of course, Jim is in all my anthologies. So um, I thought, I'm going to, you know, see what Jim thinks about Michigan State. And why don't we do it together? Which, again, I'm extremely grateful for in ways Jim will never realize. But um, so, it, you know, that was that was kind of the beginning of it. And then um, he talked to Julie Lore at MSU. And I kind of thought it would, you know, originally we were saying about 150 pages. I thought this would be sort of a snap and real quick kind of thing for me and him to do. But, you know, going through the process with someone like him, who has been through, you know, anthology processes before with his insight and his experience, which I trusted greatly for it. Um, he helped put it into a real kind of successful program, if you will, like first we do this, and then we do that. I mean, he didn't say it that way. But that's you know, step by step by step, and we started compiling this stuff and thinking in terms of the same format, jazz, blues. Sure. We were able to kind of pull Aretha and everybody together under Northern Soul, which is really a British um, term. They know what that is. A lot of Americans don't know what that is. But uh, we were able to do that and actually dress up each of the sections a little better than I was able to really do with Wayne uh with the Heaven Was Detroit book. You know, we have the little names that we have and then those nice um um with all the names in the whatever you call that format. Uh and I think we were able to kind of give each chapter a subtitle of sorts. You know, like Rock was kick out the jams and um so on and so forth. So I really like that touch uh to it.
0: Yeah. Could you, Jim, say a little bit about um, how you went about picking work for the book? Like, what, what kinds of people did you really want to include? Uh, what kinds of work were you hoping to find?
2: Yeah, yeah, there were certain poems that were kind of touchstones for me because even though I haven't you know, lived in Detroit or the Detroit area in quite a while, it's, you know... Uh...
1: Well, let me just say this, Jim, about that is, you know, the reason I have this background behind me is because I did this um, online thing Wednesday with the BBC. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about Aretha and Diana Ross. And, you know, even though some of the people like Jim would be included, move away or, you know, go and have their career elsewhere. and, And this is definitely true. Um, you know, that doesn't take Detroit out of them. I mean, you know, Jim is as Detroit as, as if he lived here all this time. Um, and, and the same with Aretha. You know, Aretha stayed in Detroit. So anyway, back to you, Jim.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, in fact, we have a pulmonary anthology called The Two Divas by Crystal Williams, which is about Aretha and Diana Ross. So, you know, oh. yeah, we've got all kinds of interesting... Uh, Things in there, but yeah, the uh, Nikki Giovanni poem for Aretha, which you know she recorded with a gospel choir in the background of her reading that poem, I felt like that needed to be in there. And uh, Patricia Smith has this incredible crown of sonnets called the Motown Crown that really gets into it. You uh, know, it's it's a longer piece, uh, so it goes into a lot of detail and. I think I was looking for places that connected the emotion of the place to the music of the place. And one of the great things about working with ML is that, you know, he's a, uh, he has bands, he's been in bands for a long time himself. So he had all these connections to the music world uh, that I didn't have. So I was more on the looking looking up uh, poems that touched on things. And then of course we overlapped in various places, but I felt like uh, we 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 made a good team. It was a lot of fun working with him, and uh, we we ended up as ML said. We we imagined this as something much smaller, but I think we, had, we we're having so much fun finding stuff. Uh, it was like uh, a treasure hunt, and we would you know we found a lot of treasure in terms of surprised by things that we found once we started digging. And yeah, so it, there was that sense of exploration and discovery, and we were you know in touch. Back and forth, sharing poems, and oh, I found this, or somebody sent me this, and and then it it just kept growing.
0: You said, uh, Jim, that the book that the book is sort of a, a treasure chest of you know a beautiful sort of collection of all of these different things. And one of the things that really strikes me about it is how much it spans. You know, it's not just poets from Detroit writing about the music that they listen to. It's not just songwriters. Uh, but it's artists from all over who are you know, responding to the music from Detroit, people who've taken Detroit with, with them when they've left. ML, you talked a little bit before the recording started about um, the effort to get songwriters into here, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Jim talked about poets that you included, um, but the anthology also includes lyrics. What was your criteria for picking lyrics to go into the anthology?
1: You know, I think as I thought about it, Um, I wanted or thought we should, and I I knew Jim would easily agree with that, is we should have some MC5 represented uh, in the anthology. Uh, Fortunately, I I know or knew um, a couple of them, um, so we were able to kind of deal with getting that pretty quickly and pretty easily. Um, There was um, the the Eminem thing was like in my head. Um, I mean, I've used lose yourself before, but that is such a gritty Detroit, um, piece. And I see it as poetry. I actually see it, Eminem what he's been doing in more recent times is more poetry than ever before with his
0: lyrics and stuff. Yeah. He's getting much more spoken word.
1: Yeah, it is, you know, and it's it more narrative, and it, it's pretty cool mm-hmm. to see him develop like that. But um, so I knew I had various connections like that, and with the songwriters, I, this one of the things that comes into my mind is that um, the uh, the the Paul Simon song. You know, I I didn't know the song, I didn't you know uh, remember it per se. I had to kind of search for it on the internet, but I kept hearing that part about Detroit Detroit what a hell of a hockey team and and so that led me to think well there must be more Detroit in that song and there was and you know it was a lot of that kind of stuff that that went on um I heard that you know Fats Domino had a song called Detroit City well it's you know not epic poetry it's still pretty classic and, um, that, that sort of thing, I remembered Robbie Robertson had a, a song called, uh, down a lazy river where he mentions little Willie John. I'm in the backseat of the car with little, little Willie John on the radio. And I'm like, Hey, little Willie John's from Detroit, you know? So that, that's kind of how I looked into the songwriting thing. And well, even, uh, Robert Jones getting started with, I mean, he's a, no one's storyteller songwriter and blues guy in Detroit um but that poem works very nicely in there so I didn't want it to be a songwriter's anthology and I don't think Jim uh wanted that either and and even if I did want that I would hope Jim would stop me uh from doing that because that's that'd be kind of a lousy anthology you know you can find them anywhere
0: yeah well, and the collection works so nicely in terms of there being, you know, lyrics that are representative of the kinds of music that was coming out of Detroit at any given time, uh, and then responses to that, and people referring back to it. And you, so many of the poems have echoes of the music that's being referred to. There's a lot of the, a lot of the poems that have like lines from Motown songs, or people kind of titles from you know, dancing in the street, or other kinds of things that call back to the musical culture. You're both Detroit natives. I was wondering if I could have you talk a little bit about what your experience of music was in Detroit growing up. Were you part of the scene? Were you um, going to see particular bands?
2: Yeah, uh, my parents moved uh, out to Warren when I was just a little kid. Uh, so I grew up uh, right off A Mile, between A Mile and Nine Mile off Orion. Of so it's kind of you know, there was that sense of the, you know, the symbolic nature of eight miles a kind of border, but I think uh, there's no borders for the music, in terms of what you could pick up on your radio, and that opened up a, a world to me uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, obviously beyond the Motown sound, which is you know something I grew up with, and CKLW that enormous, uh, with their enormous antenna over in Windsor, Canada certainly uh, was a big part of getting Detroit music out and at least uh, across the Midwest. And then when the 60s hit, you know, we had radio stations like WABX and uh, WRIF, the the kind of underground stations that would, you know, feature the MC5 and some of the other uh, punk bands. I mean, yeah, Detroit is so, uh, and, and there were certain, types of music that's tended to fit where where I was at, at that age of life in terms of uh, you know the Motown stuff and the, the the punk stuff with Iggy and MC5. I I actually I, I came across this quote recently from Alice Cooper who some people don't know he's a native Detroiter who went away and then came back but I thought I would share this uh, in terms of the connection between the music and the people, uh, Alice uh, said, "L.A. just didn't get it. They were all on the wrong. They were all on the wrong drug for us. They were on acid, and we were basically drinking beer. We fit much more in Detroit than we did anywhere else. And you know that sense of that edge that I, I think across the genres, the stuff." In, in the anthology, both the music and the poetry, has a kind of emotional edge and urgency to it. It's like, and uh, Iggy himself used to talk about uh, how they were trying to imitate the sound of the assembly line in their music, boom, boom, boom. You know, And I, I think there's that sense in Detroit of, hey, I, I don't have time to be around the bush. I'm just gonna tell it like it is. And I think the music has always done that and the poetry does it too.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that that note about imitating the sound of the assembly line. There's a bit in Lawrence Joseph's kind of afterword to the anthology where he points to um, the sort of Detroit blues as having had a more driving rhythm that really stretched out into the kind of four on the floor, you know, funkadelic kind of beat. It is interesting to see that even across genres, that kind of commitment to hard driving, you know, rhythmic and thinking about the Motor City, it's all, it's all really compelling. Um, ML, did you, what was your experience of music like in Detroit?
1: Well, I, you know, I was exposed to music. I'm not going to tell this whole memoir story, but I was exposed to music at an early age by uh, my grandparents who raised me. And grandma loved rock and roll. She really loved Elvis Presley, the early one, not the fat one. Um, well, she did like the fat one, too, but, um, but the early one is what she turned me on to. So I was into the music and, you know, pretty much on top of um, what was happening at a very early age. And, and then, of course, listening to CKLW, too, um, was greatly influential on WKNR AM and all that. Um, and I, I just felt close to music and just, you know, was always on top of it. As I was growing up, music was always a big part of my life. I still, I, I still have my little leather Sears, a transistor radio, actually. Um, I, I found it while, while home, you know, digging through stuff, but, um, so I'd carry that everywhere and listen to the music. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I became more aware of Detroit music, probably, um, I mean, meaning like the Motown thing, probably in the mid 60s. I mean, I was really a Beatle person. But on the radio, of course, there were lots of Motown songs. I started to know about that. I really got uh, tuned into Motown when I heard the, uh, Marvelettes do my baby must be a magician. Uh, and I still love that song. Um, and there was something going on there that I really dug. So, but as I, you know, started to, in my teen years, listening to WABX, uh, radio was really important. Um, and, Um, In fact, right over my shoulder on the the library lawn is where I I used to go down to see uh, WABX free concerts. And they would be like the Amboy Dukes and Brownsville Station and um, different groups like that, the Detroit groups. That's when I really was tuned into Detroit. And I love the MC5. The MC5 were my kind of political heroes at the time. And they were playing around, uh, and there was a little place by our house uh, that was a hipster spot that I would go to. And again, I must have been under 16 because um, I, I I had to forge my ID card. And that was just to hear music and drink Coke and have chips, which is weird. Um, but at any rate. So I, you know, I just kind of grew with the music and learned more and, and gotten better in touch with the Detroit, you know, who was from Detroit and what was happening. Of course, the Stooges. And I did a lot of my concert viewing at the East Town. Uh, I wasn't so much a Grandy person, only because my grandmother probably wouldn't let me go to the Grandy because um, I was too young. But um, but she did let me go downtown and see those those shows. So I just, and then, you know, time went on and I, you know, been teaching at Wayne State and I knew how much it happened right around Wayne State and I uh, developed a Motown class and we started going to the museum, which was a couple of locks uh, north of uh,
0: where where I'm standing right now,
1: you know, and then more knowledge, more knowledge and so on and so forth, so.
0: You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Jim Daniels and ML Liebler, editors of "Respect: The Poetry of Detroit Music." One of the things you said in your response, ML, that I that I really think resonates with the volume is the the degree to which even just going to see music um, was an act of rebellion or was like oh yeah um, was prohibited in some way. One of my favorite poems in the piece is that W.D. Earhart dancing in the streets poem which is about precisely this topic like the idea that I only want to go and and have a dance and drink a soda pop and that's uh, you know in and of itself seen as rebellious or seen as you know a, a challenge to authority.
1: Well you know it was rebellious but you know being raised by my grandparents I found more controversy in between parents of kids, what I called the World War II kids, or the World War II parents. Um, like, you know, the, I, I love music. I didn't think of it as rebellion, although it is, and it certainly is. But, I mean, when you think about it, my grandmother uh, and grandfather would drive me down to Cobo Hall when I was like 12 to see The Doors or Jimi Hendrix, or even to the place, the free concerts they we take the bus from St. Clair Shores down Jefferson and get off at Woodward and just walk up Woodward uh, to do that. So it is a rebellious kind of thing, but I was fortunate. I don't know, maybe Jim had a different...
0: Jim, is that the case where you, was more rebellious for you to get out and go see music?
2: Uh, yeah, well, that was certainly part of it in terms of... Uh, uh, ML and I have talked to each other about the different concerts we went to. I used to there were these uh, rock and roll revivals down at the state fairgrounds that were like noon to midnight uh, bacchanals, and uh, so,
1: uh. Uh,
2: it, so getting uh, you know permission to go down there, and and I, I wasn't driving, I wasn't old enough to drive yet either. When I started going to that, in terms of you know how to get there and how to get back was a, always a logistical problem, uh. and to make sure I. I Behave myself so that when I got home, I could pass scrutiny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds like a good time. Well, that's
1: all for another episode because yeah, I wonder for sure. I'm myself. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to pass scrutiny, but I'm like, how did they not know?
0: <laughs> I wonder if you if you guys would share uh, some of your favorite contributions to the book. What are pieces, you, you mentioned some that you had to have in there. What are some that you um, think are really you know the treasures inside of the anthology?
2: Yeah, this is a poem called The History of Sweat by Linda Nemec Foster. Look forward to the Midwest where sweat was really invented and patented. You'll find it alive, thriving in Mitch Ryder, the one person who can sweat more than anyone, even without the backup of the Detroit wheels, even when he lip syncs. Like a dinosaur in heat, Mitch lumbers on the stage Sings the same song, the only song he will ever be remembered for. Sweat of a fossil glides down his neck. Back in 1966, we were sweating too. If not on a dance floor with Mitch's grunts blaring from the speakers, then in the back seat of some guy's Ford. Devil with the blue dress on or off. But no boy furtively holding me in a slow dance embrace Or in a parked car where the air became the moisture escaping our bodies. No boy ever sweated like Mitch sweated. And for all I know, Ryder was more real, more alive, more wet than any guy who unbuttoned my blouse or parted my legs. The car radio playing that one song, the same calculated Ryder sweat, steaming into translucent drops that formed on the windows of the Gold 63 Thunderbird, steaming into the sweat. Of whoever it was that tried to make me it that night,
0: yeah, that is really something. yeah, that's good. that is good.
1: In fact, Linda uh, read that poem um, that the last event that we had when people were out and about in Ann Arbor on March second, I think, and and that was a big hit. and um and she talked a little bit more about it. And um, how she was embarrassed that her husband was in the audience. But that's, that's a side point.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love about that poem that it does what so many of the pieces do, which is it somehow has this magical way of of resurrecting the music that's being discussed, you know, breathing life into the music that soundtracked the experience or that you know compelled the experience or relates to the experience, while simultaneously facilitating, the sort of lyric reflection on that experience the thinking about the poet's own you know being or things that are being dis- described and thought about so many of the pieces in this in this anthology do that and it's really incredible the kind of simultaneity of musical experience and poetic experience that these authors are able to capture
2: yeah that's what i like about that poem is it has everything it has cars it has bars it has music and it has sex, and it has sweat, and Mitch Ryder's voice, who obviously he, uh, he crossed the genres in between R&B and rock, and so a lot of stuff comes together in that one poem, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really great. ML, did you find something that, that uh, um, is representative for you?
1: Yeah, I was looking through, there's so there's so many in here. In fact, let me say at this point, this is an excellent book, if you're listening to the podcast, to order through the mail for the next several months of seclusion and isolation to read.
2: You have a Spotify playlist, too, so you can stay home, and listen to the music. Right, and the right. If the people can
1: access that, right? The um, Spotify list.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll put a, I'll put a link to, in, in the description uh, to the show.
1: Um, There was a poem in here that uh, I just was thinking of. One uh, poet I really wanted in that was in my mind at the beginning was some of the more musical uh, poems of Robert Hayden. And um, I had had Robert Hayden in another anthology and had worked with his daughter at that time, who was kind of managing things. But... Uh, another poet friend is really kind of the archivist for Hayden. So I I knew we could get some poems. And I, I'm going to read this one from him, which is homage to the Empress of the Blues. Because there was a man somewhere in a candy-striped silk shirt, faxel and dangerous as a jaguar, and because a woman moaned for him in sixty-watt gloom and mourned him, faithless love, two-time in love, oh love, oh careless, aggravating love, she came out on stage in yards of pearls emerging like a favorite scenic view, flashed her golden smile and sang, because gray lace began somewhere to show from underneath, torn hurdy-gurdy lithographs of doll-faced in heaven, and because there were those who feared alarming fists of snow on the door of those who feared the riot squad of statistics, she came out on stage in ostrich feather-beaded satin and shone that smile on us and sang.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's uh, Robert Hayden
0: that is really something the musicality of language in that poem is incredible
1: yes well robert was good at that for sure
0: and the imagery too that sort of you get the diva with the with the flower the feathers and the sparkles and the whole nine Mhm mm-hmm. I wonder if we could um, talk a little bit about the challenges of putting the book together. Did you struggle uh, collecting permissions from people to include their work? Is, were there people that you wanted to include that you couldn't get in?
1: Yeah, there for me, and I think Jim would have wanted it too, um, but a Patty Smith piece. In particular, I think it would have been great to have that piece she wrote about her husband since her husband has two two pieces in the book too. And I just felt that she wouldn't, you know, was would I wouldn't be able to get through to her, you know? And, um, I ran into somebody who's friends with her and said, Oh, she would have loved to be in it. And I wanted to kind of yell, stop the presses. We got to put one more in. Um, so that's one. And the other one I really, really wanted, I think Jim knew of my passion for it is I really wanted, uh, a piece or two by Smokey Robinson. And I really tried, I mean, I really tried hard. I I made phone calls. I found out bodyguard and phone numbers. And you know, I tried everything I could and begged people who knew Smokey to somehow get word because I thought he would really be bummed out. And maybe he is now uh, sitting in Los Angeles, bummed out that he's not in this great book. Um, and I wanted him in there because he should. And it's he, he, I mean, he he published a little chapbook of his poetry that he just did himself. Now, how much cooler would it be to be in a book from the Michigan State University Press than your own little chapbook from Kinko's, you know? So,
0: yeah, alongside all the other yeah, great think, art poets and readers,
1: he'll never know probably that we were trying to get him in there. Um, But if he sees this book, and we had a real successful launch in Hollywood uh, before all this stuff happened in February. Um, And so the book's there, and I'm sure if if he shops in any bookstore, it's got to be book soup. So at some point, he'll see it and go, hey, you know, what's this? How come I'm not in it?
0: (laughs) How about you, Jim? Anybody, um, Anybody that you missed getting or any interesting tales of trying to wrangle permissions for works to include?
2: Well, I agree with ML. I know he, he did work hard to try and get Smokey. I mean, not he's, no, he's known as the poet of Motown, so it uh, would have been great to have him. I also kind of wanted to get something from Bob Seger, too. Oh, mm. right. I, I feel like a lot of his lyrics come closer to poetry than some other folks, and you know, he, he identifies so much in terms of uh, Detroit and the connections there, too. Uh, in terms of the permissions, <laughs> it was... Uh, so if you could get through it to the artists themselves, they tended to be on board and try and make a deal. Uh, but the challenge, like with Smokey, is actually getting through the person, getting through, you know, the more famous they are, the more they have a kind of staff there. And, you know, so I... And well knows this, I happen to uh, be in London in the fall and ran into Billy Bragg, and actually, handed him a copy of the book. And wow! And And, and M. L. Was, was responsible for him being being in there. Uh, but that you know, he is really like such a fan of Motown that uh, you know he he like Smokey probably would have been was uh, thrilled to be in it. Yeah. And and usually
1: I tell people the musicians who were in it, it was you know far quicker to get their permissions back than the poets.
2: Hmm, yeah. You know,
1: some of the poets we had to keep writing. Hey, come on, come on, you know, and usually when it's done through a licensing type of situation, they do it very quickly. Yeah. So uh, Billy Bragg, uh, I mean, Jim and I have been kicking around the idea if we ever get out of uh, isolation of uh, being at, uh, doing a launch in um, in London. Uh, specifically in London, we could do one in in Munich too, where poet uh, Detroit stuff is really big. But uh, and when we do it in London, I mean, we sh- I should try to reach out and get Billy to come down. I met Billy years ago uh, at the Ruther House on uh, Van Dyke and Jefferson. Hmm. Uh, he was in town to do stuff. I-, I believe it was for the newspaper strike, and we all had lunch. Um, at the union uh, at the, the home of the UAW there. And he was a very kind person and very normal. I assume he still is. Um, and if we can reach him, I want to do something at the poetry cafe in London, the London poetry cafe or society, which, which is a really cool spot, but maybe he'll come, you know, uh, we'll pursue that. I'll use my connections and see if we can get that. If now we're going to have Pete Brown read everybody's poetry. The guy who wrote all the cream lyrics. Oh. he'll be with us, join us.
0: Very cool. What were, yeah. the, what were the big coups? What were the things you didn't, uh, didn't think were going to make it into the volume that, that did?
1: Hmm. It seemed like we did a lot of battling or trying to get through to, to a couple of people. Maybe it was the June Jordan people or something as one.
0: I that June Jordan piece is really interesting though because it's so uh it's a it's a response to Eminem, right? So it's a slim lady in response to the kind of early slim shady braggadocious uh controversial Eminem. Um uh, it do you I mean is that part of the reason it was difficult to get permission for or No,
1: no, it was just because she she had passed away. Oh, okay. So when when people were gone, uh it was harder to um, you know, I mean, family, when poets die until they find out it's not true, they think, you know, we're as uh, wealthy and famous as rock stars. And then they find out, oh, they're not. And then they let anybody have whatever they want, you know, but um, but some places, you know, kind of hold tight control over uh, the material. So uh, when they're, when they've passed away, so. That was probably the the
2: reasoning. Yeah, yeah, we had go, going through this state. The poets who had passed away were definitely the, the hardest. Hmm. So another challenging one was Nikki Giovanni because uh, Nikki Giovanni gave us permission once we finally got through because, you know, she's famous. So we had to get some, somebody's email, somebody else's email uh, that was connected to uh, Nikki because uh, Nikki did wouldn't deal with it directly, and, and then she gave us the permission. And then the publisher got wind of it and said, "No, uh, Nikki can't give permission for her own poem. <laughs> uh, you you have to pay us." <laughs> and so it got a little dicey there for a while. But
1: well, that that kind of happened. Um, it not not as drastic by any um, um, uh, idea, but. Um, Phil Levine had passed away, but, uh, fortunately, um, before years before he passed away, not not super years, but you know, a number of years before he did, he sent me a book and Jim, you may have it if you you know, collect his stuff, but it was that book of unselected poems,
2: <laughs>
1: um, yeah. Phil Levine's unselected, which was done by a small press. And Phil, you know, wrote in the book, Um, and that's where a lot of his music poems were actually, I didn't know that till we started this project, but, uh, he, he went through the index and put checks by all the poems he thought were relevant to Detroit in various ways. And then said, you can use any of these anytime you want. I own them. Mm -hmm. Now they've since come out in his last book, but the good part about that is Ed Hirsch is the, um, executor for the estate and you know ed's very good friends so he's easy to deal with too actually easier than when phil phil was alive with knoff you know Uh, he had to always fight with them to give me stuff for cheap
2: Hmm. you
1: know cheaper than they would normally charge someone like he said charge them 10 bucks and they'd have a fit but they that's usually what i paid was 10 bucks so there were, you know, some things like that, and then some that were a little more um, difficult to.
0: Yeah, I was wondering, uh, ML, at the at the beginning, you said that this was it followed on a project, a collection of essays that you published with uh, Wayne State. Mm-hmm. Is this the second volume in a trilogy of collections of <laughs> Detroit music? Are we? Is there more to come?
1: Uh, no. Ask Jim. Can we do <laughs> fiction?
2: Well. I have a story called Little Stevie Wonder. That (laughs) There we
1: go. See, it always starts off when, you know, Jim's usually got something that fits, (laughs) like a glove. Mm. Speaking of that, going back to my that first book I did, the labor one, you know, I could have had a million Jim Daniels poems in it, but I wanted to, he was a new fiction writer at that time, I think, or at least published. And I thought, no, this story's great. I mean, I always use that story in my classes. It, you know and then the film holds up just as nicely i think um i'm now i'm thinking it's called pet sounds but it's
2: <laughs> no pets no pets
1: <laughs> no pets yeah. it's a great story and a film was made of it and um i thought no i want jim to be in this as a fiction writer i know everybody thinks he's a poet. I i i don't know if that's a little bit of deviousness in the back of my head or whatever, like I like to make songwriters poets, but I I want people to know him as a fiction writer. You know, they all know poetry, but here's something
2: different. Well, The thing about poetry is it started as an oral art form and uh, with music, and so uh, a lot of the early poems were sung by, you know, wandering minstrels minstrels and things like that. It wasn't until a printing press that it became more of a, a visual thing, so I think that was another fun aspect of this, is to play around with, uh, you know, the sound of music and the sound of poetry, and that's where they blend in on so many levels. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah, Yeah.
0: I think we see that throughout the the volume, that is really a, a resounding sort of experience when you go through and see both people who are writing songs and people who are writing poems. Um, I, we're kind of coming up to, you know, having used up most of our time. I wonder if, if we could each, uh, if you would each be willing to share one more piece that you like from the volume before we go.
1: Why don't we each read one of our own? Because I read yours in Los Angeles, the Patti Smith one, and people really liked it. I had to tell them not to like it so much.
2: Well, that's a short one. So I could definitely read that one.
1: But you know what's cool in LA is that there were some former Detroiters in the house who remembered that and then that got a whole conversation going about that show. I was there myself too,
2: but it yeah, was this a uh, benefit I, I remember right a benefit for the Detroit Symphony and uh so Patty Smith was performing with her husband's band uh Sonic uh, Sonic rendezvous band, and it was a great, it was a great concert.
1: Well, I was there too. I remember she started, didn't she start her set by reading from the book of Matthew and the Bible? Mm. You might have been too stoned, but
2: <laughs> well, that's what the poem's about it a little bit.
1: <laughs> she did. She came out and I thought, well, this is a different
2: kind of approach to a rock show. So this is uh, called Patty Smith at the Punch and Judy Theater. She's one freaky kind of scarecrow, scaring all the birds away, no crop to protect, just scaring on principle, because everybody needs a good scare, get the blood flowing, thinking about dying or just being bored. Us, we're stoned as always, so when she spits on us, it just feels like (laughs) grain.
0: I love it. So the
1: one that I have in here, uh, that's in the rock section. Mine is in the uh, northern soul section. Um, and it deals with early, uh, not doo but shortly after doo-wop. Uh, there was a, a group on Fortune Records called um, uh, the Fal- uh on Fortune Records by the Falcons, And in the Falcons, I mean, there was like Eddie Floyd was in it, and um, another guy who became very famous, Wilson Pickett. And they would all rehearse across the street from when Farouk was a little child, and he could hear them, you know, singing in the front room, rehearsing. And I always remembered that memory, so I wrote this, Rhythm and Blues Fire. Tonight, gasoline pours, creating a fire of rhythm and blues, igniting an engine of sweet soul dreams. Warm, dark, purple, late summer night songs that respect themselves. Hot harmonies on an east side Detroit street. Falcons singing in the front room and across the street. A young boy hears their call and response It's a new church, it's Detroit. It's late 1959, and it's our good fortune to have new hymns for our northern souls. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you both so much for that. I really, I really appreciated the conversation and the poetry, uh, and the anthology is, is uh, as I said at the outset, a monument to the music and the effect of the music of Detroit on American culture.
2: All right. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, I'll hope to uh, see you in Lansing sometime.
0: Respect, the poetry of Detroit music is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Jim Daniels' author page on Facebook and M.L. Liebler on Facebook and at mlliebler.com. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medija Dos, Dante Smith, Eileen Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.